Yeah, before I even start, I want to share how incredible it is for me to be here right now in front of you guys. And um, why am I already getting emotional? I didn't even preach yet. The anointing is thick in this room. Dang. Dang, Emmaus. But anyways, uh, like Rona had shared, I was actually a grad student at SNU from 2008 to 2010. I was a student at the Graduate School of International Studies, Kukje Daewagwan. Where's Michelle Flickinger? What's up, Huvei? So it's funny because while I was at GSIS, I led a weekly prayer meeting for the grad students. And it was great. We prayed for each other. We prayed for the school. But I remember even in the midst of this, there was one thing that I kept on crying out for. And I said, Lord, this grad school prayer meeting is great. But Lord, bring Emmaus to SNU. (laughs) No, I kid you not. Like that was something that was constantly on my heart. And I remember I said, Lord, like, come on. Like, I see Emmaus at Yonte. Yonte is great, but Lord, SNU is number one. Come on. Not that there's any comparison, right? Not that there's any comparison. There's full unity. We are all part of one body in Christ. But I kid you not, I really, my heart really longed to see Emmaus at this campus. So, yeah, that said, I'm extremely honored to be here tonight. I'm so, so honored, and yeah, I'm really honored that I was asked to come here to preach to you from the Word of God, and it's funny because even on my way here, even on my way to this global lounge, I feel like God is reminding me, like personally, like me, an SNU alum of all the prayers that I had sort of sown into this campus, and it's funny, I was passing, you know that Sha gate, the, the main gate? We called it the Shah Gate. Do you call it the Shah Gate? Okay, perfect. So I was passing through the Shah Gate, and then God was reminding me of how three years ago, 2010, I remember I was going on this prayer walk throughout campus. And it was, it was winter, it was night, it was like so, it was sort of depressing, but I felt led to go on a prayer walk. And I remember like I had my new mittens and I laid my hands on the Shah gate. It was dark so the security guard couldn't really see me. And I, was lay- I laid my hands on the Shah gate and I was praying. And I said, Lord, may every person that passes through this gate, whether they be students or staff or professors, whomever, may them, I want them to powerfully encounter you. Right? So as I was going through that gate today, God was sort of reminding me of that prayer. Lisa, remember that prayer, right? And then, so I go up, I make a left turn, and I pass by GSIS, my old graduate school. And as, and time out, GSIS looks so much nicer than when I was, they have this whole new wing. But anyways, as I was passing the building, the Lord was reminding me of the prayers that I prayed, even when I was a student there. And, yeah, it's, it's really funny. It's really great to be here tonight. I feel like a lot of things are sort of coming full circle. Yeah, so I want to thank you again for opening up the opportunity for me to share with you. But yeah, I don't. I just want to go straight into my message. Uh, the Lord spoke to me very specifically about what He wanted me to release to you guys tonight. So if you guys are taking notes, or if you want to cast some sort of frame uh, for the message tonight, the title is Chanel Number no. Five. Got nothing on this. Really random, right? Okay, so the title is Chanel Number no. 5, got nothing on this. So Chanel, the company, like the luxury company, C-H-A-N-E-L, and then number 5. So I think the way they write it on the perfume bottle is like capital N, lowercase o, dot 
five, no space. Like, aesthetically looks really nice, right? So Chanel number five, got nothing on this. And the Chanel number five I'm talking about in this title, as many of you might know, it's one of the most famous perfume brands in the world. Okay, so it was Chanel number no. five is a perfume that was created by Coco Chanel back in 1921. And since then, it really took off and it's known worldwide. And it's really funny because I remember on my most recent trip back to New York, I'm originally from New York. Is there anyone here who's like from the New York area? It's all good. Anyone from America? Okay, there we go. Awesome. But anyways, I remember on my most recent trip back to America, it was in 2011, my dad made me promise to get two special gifts for my return trip back to Korea. So, um, you know, like there's this whole Korean honor thing. So on my dad's side, he wanted me to get a gift for his oldest brother and then his oldest brother's wife. And he was very specific about his request. And my dad, he was born during the Korean War. So he's, he's sort of old school. I mean, he's not super old, but he's sort of old school. And then my aunt and my uncle, they're in their 70s. They're in their late 70s, okay? So my dad was the youngest of, I think, seven or eight. But, so try to guess, what are the two luxury items, like from America, or like the two international luxury items that my dad requested for me to get? Right? So for my aunt, he, he's like, okay, so he's like, he sent me, he's like, Lisa, for, uh, for Kunama, right, my like big aunt or whatever, get a bottle of Chanel number no. five. And then for Kunapa, like my big uncle, my oldest uncle, he says, get a bottle of Johnny Walker, right? <laughs> like, like the most expensive kind. But it's, it's so, it's so strange because my uncle, he doesn't, he doesn't drink. Like my uncle, he doesn't really drink. And then my aunt, she's not super fancy. Like, she doesn't really wear perfume. But for some reason, my dad wanted to represent his love and his devotion to his brother and to his sister-in-law through a really expensive gift, you know? And he wanted to sort of show to them, you know, this is my sort of love for you. It's like a Chanel sort of love, you know? I don't want to say it's a Johnny Walker type of love, but, you know, it's, it's like a luxury, it's a very luxurious type of love. It's a Gucci sort of love, whatever. He was trying to say to them, you know, my love for you is, is worth something. I don't have a cheap love for you, right? So, yeah, so for me, myself, like, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Chanel Number no. 5. Like, I think it's a little bit more ajuma, you know, it's a little bit older for people of older persuasion. But... <laughs> But, you know, I have to admit, like, no matter where you go, people sort of recognize Chanel Number no. 5 as a very luxurious, like, product. And it has a reputation. And it stands for something. So that's what we're going to sort of focus on for tonight. Like, not Chanel Number no. 5, but we're going to focus on luxurious, expensive perfume and what that represents. Okay, it's going to make sense as you go along the journey, so don't worry. But if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Mark chapter 14, and we'll be reading starting from verse 3. Mark 14, we'll be reading from verses 3 to 9. And uh, before I read it out, I want to give you a little bit of context for this passage. So... In Mark 14, here we have Jesus. 
We all know who Jesus is, right? So Jesus, he's done his three years of powerful ministry on the earth. And by the time we get to Mark 14, he's just chilling. He's chilling at the home of Simon the leper. He's with some of his disciples. And it's two days before Passover. So therefore, Jesus knows that he's going to be killed very, very soon. It was prophesied over him. He knew this from the beginning, that he was going to have a powerful ministry, and then he was going to be sacrificed. So he's chilling at the home of Simon the leper. He knows he's going to get killed very soon. And in the midst of this, there's a woman who comes in. Her name is Mary. And she comes into a space where women were never, ever really allowed. It was completely taboo for women to enter the sacred space of Jesus and the disciples. But she goes and she proceeds to do a very strange thing, a very, very strange thing. And let me read it out for you all. I'll read it starting with verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he, Jesus, was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And, wherever, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Amen. So why don't we pray real quick? Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your presence here tonight. We thank you for your sweet presence here at Emmaus SNU. And God, I thank you, Lord, that truly we're going to go deeper into the devotion of Mary of Bethany here tonight. And God, I pray that whether it's our first time hearing the story of Mary of Bethany or whether it's our hundredth time hearing the story, I declare that your word is living and active. And God, you're going to speak to each and every one of us very specifically and in a very new way. Lord, I thank you, God. And I ask, God, that you help us and that you lead us and show us what it means to live a life of loving you more deeply, to live a life of loving you more extravagantly. God, teach us what it means to live a life of devotion that costs us something. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I get a little bit emotional because the message that I'm sharing with you is a very personal message for me. And it's something that the Lord, it's something that I'm, I myself am trying to unwrap. And it's something that I myself am trying to understand. And it's really funny because this message, it has a lot to do with my days as a grad student in SNU as well. So it's even more emotional that I'm here, you know, speaking at Amaze SNU. And the, the emotion factor is heightened by the fact that God's presence is so clearly here in this place. So yeah, so that's just my, my warning. But anyways, so the passage that I just read to you guys, um, it's about Mary of Bethany. And oftentimes, there are pastors and there are people who sort of refer to this passage to highlight Mary's devotion to Jesus. 
And the perfume that she uses to anoint the head of Jesus, it's often used to sort of demonstrate her extravagant love for him. And as you can see in this example, it's the love that really costs her something. Okay? And I mean, if you sort of approach this situation very practically, like as a very smart student, you would say that Mary's act of devotion made no sense at all. Right? In honor of the name of Jesus, in the honor of his ministry, right? she could have fed the poor, she could have housed the poor. Like, What did Jesus do for most of the time that he was on this earth? He healed the sick. So Mary of Bethany, she could have easily used the money that she saved up to build a hospital in the honor, in, in honor of Jesus and his ministry on the earth. But what does Mary do? What Mary ends up doing is she breaks this alabaster jar of perfume and she anoints Jesus with it. Okay? And though it makes no sense in the eyes of the world, what I'm going to do for you today is I want to show you how Mary's actions actually make so much sense. Mary's actions make a lot of sense, and not just for Jesus, who's on the receiving end of her devotion, but what Mary did actually makes a lot of practical sense for herself as well on the giving end. Okay, so I know that um, as Christians, we're always challenged to love God more extravagantly. You know, so when, when you love somebody, like the person receiving the love gets sort of the benefit. That's what it seems like. But what I'm trying to, what I want to show you today is when you love, when you pour out your love to Jesus extravagantly, it actually is of a very practical benefit to you. And then actually builds you up as well. Yeah, so basically today I'm going to talk about how to love Jesus extravagantly. Okay. So, um... And in the midst of this, you'll see that loving Jesus extravagantly is something that's actually very practical. Okay? So point number one, okay, to add some structure to this, point number one to how to love Jesus extravagantly is this. Know that your name is already marked by extravagance. Okay? So if you look back at verse 3, what is the name of the city that we're in? Bethany. Okay, really good. So Bethany actually means place of resurrection. Okay, that's the meaning of uh, the name. And Mary of Bethany, who's sort of the focus of this passage, she is a sister to Martha and Lazarus. So some of you might be familiar with the story, but in John chapter 11, we hear and we read of how Lazarus falls ill and he dies before Jesus comes. And in Mary and Martha's eyes, it would have made more sense for Jesus to come earlier. It would have made so much more sense for Jesus to come earlier and heal their brother. But no, Jesus takes a sweet time. He's just chilling, right? So people, they come, they, they tell Jesus, Jesus, Lazarus, whom you love, he's fallen ill. But Jesus, he, he doesn't rush. He's in no rush. He just takes a sweet time to Bethany. And why does he do that? Okay, so if you read, if you look at John chapter 11, verses 40 to 42, Jesus tells Martha, Didn't I tell you, did I not tell you, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And so basically, after this passage, Jesus commands Lazarus to life, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. Okay, so what I want to sort of point out to you in this passage 
is that Bethany, Bethany is a city where Jesus has already performed a miracle. Okay? Just because he can. I mean, think about it. So, if Jesus were very practical, very pragmatic, if he was being like time efficient, so he hears that Lazarus is sick, he says, okay, let's go to Bethany right now, I'm going to heal him, just like I healed so many other people. Right? That would have made the most sense. But what does he do? He just, he's just chilling. He takes his sweet old time to Bethany. By the time he gets to Bethany, Lazarus is already long gone. Right? But even after Lazarus is gone, that's where Jesus decides to perform his miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus, he has the option of healing the sick, and he also has the option of raising the dead. But in this situation, in Bethany, he decides to just let Lazarus die to raise him from the dead. So why does he do this? He didn't have to do this. But the reason, like for me, what I felt is that the reason why Jesus waited for Lazarus to die to sort of resurrect him extravagantly is basically just because he can, number one. Why not, right? He can, right? He's Jesus. And then number two, by doing that, it brings more glory to him. But even, even in terms of Jesus making this decision, like practical versus extravagant, it sort of shows his nature as well. Okay? So we see that in Bethany, the city, right? The meaning of the name Bethany means like place of resurrection. So therefore, this woman that we read about in Mark 14, her name is Mary of Bethany. So attached to her name is the reality of what had happened in the city of Bethany. Her name, her identity is attached with that extravagant miracle. And what I want to sort of propose to you today is that many of us in here, we're Christian. We believe in Jesus. He's our Lord and Savior, all of that. right? We go to church, whatever. But not whatever, but, you know, we, we do, we live a Christian life. And the thing is that if we call ourselves Christian, by nature of ourselves, by nature of us calling ourselves Christian, even in that name, Christian, there's an extravagance. Okay? Because Christian, what does it mean? If you're Christian, that means you're a follower of Christ. Okay? And then what does Christ mean? Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and Christos means anointed. Okay, let's go deeper. What does anointed mean? Anointed means set apart. It means holy. Okay, that's number one. And then even Christos, the Greek word Christos, is the derivative of the Hebrew word Masiah. Okay, and the Masiah, that's where we get the word Messiah. And what does Messiah mean? Messiah basically means savior, liberator. Okay, so even in our identity as Christian, what is sort of wrapped up in us being identified as Christian? We have anointed. We're anointed, we're set apart, we're holy, and God is entrusting us to, just like Jesus, be saviors and liberators of this earth. Okay? So just like Mary of Bethany, like she, like it was already a part of her identity and name to be extravagant, likewise, that's the case for us. Okay? So that's the number, I guess, like point number one. Okay? So point number one is that one way to love Jesus extravagantly is to first and foremost know that you're already marked by extravagance. Like your identity, your name, your nature, the life that you're living, it's already marked by extravagance. So it's not like a big leap. It's not like you have to sell everything and like change yourself completely to live extravagantly. By you being a Christian, by you putting your faith in Jesus, that's already like you're already included in an extravagant identity. Okay? Now let's go deeper. What's another way to love Jesus with extravagance? Okay, this might take you by surprise, but point two is break your jar. 
what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Break your jar. So this will make a bit more sense as I unwrap it for you guys. So let's look. If you look at Mark 14, what's the actual object? What's the actual object through which Mary demonstrates her love for Jesus? We have an alabaster jar. Okay? So just to sort of very quickly summarize what I had read out in Mark chapter 14. So we have Mary of Bethany. She has this alabaster jar. Okay? And it's filled with perfume. Okay? And what she does is she breaks it. And then the perfume that comes out, she pours it on the head of Jesus to anoint him. Okay? So let's focus on the jar first and foremost. It's made out of alabaster. Okay? And one thing to know about alabaster is that it's actually a very precious material. Okay, alabaster is a very precious material. It's not cheap. You know, it is not cheap. And also, it's a very soft material. It's not like steel. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not, it's even like softer than glass. Usually when you go to a department store and you buy like a bottle of perfume, it's usually in glass, right? But alabaster is actually quite soft. And it's also slightly water-soluble. So what this means is that if it mixes with water or if alabaster gets wet, it starts to dissolve little by little. Okay? So alabaster is not like something that's immutable. It's not something that's super strong. It's actually a pretty like fragile material. Okay? So, and also, like when alabaster gets dirty, like you can't just wash it off with dishwashing soap because actually if you take soap to wash alabaster, it actually makes it very rough and dull. And what happens is that once you keep on washing alabaster with soap, it loses its shine and it loses its like translucence. It's no longer like beautiful. Okay? So from this alone, we know that alabaster is a very, it's like a pretty high maintenance material, right? It's very soft. You have to take care of it. You have to make sure it doesn't get dirty because if it gets dirty, it gets all messed up, right? So... But what I want to propose to you is that this, pre- this jar is a very, very precious jar. It's, it has a very high value. But it's also, it wasn't meant to, be, re- to remain untouched forever. Okay? Because if you think about a lot of things that we value in this world, things that have, like, things that are just very expensive. I know that a lot of people in America and even in Korea, like, after... Okay, this is really random. Do any of you have Indian friends? Anyone here Indian? Oh, what's up? Okay, this is... Yay, praise God. Jameson. Okay, but the thing is that... So I'm from New York. I'm from New York, and I have a... I, growing up in New York, I had a bunch of Indian friends. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to, like, a culturally Indian wedding, but it's so extravagant. It's so beautiful. There's, like... So much gold, like gold everywhere, right? I mean, this is more of like, you see this more in traditional Hindu weddings. You see this less in Christian weddings. But nevertheless, you just see like heck of gold. Like they're just like the bride is dripping gold. Like on her wedding day, that bride is worth like thousands of dollars. Just like what's on her, right? But what happens is that the bride, she gets all adorned on her wedding day, like bangles and this and that and whatever. But then after the wedding day, usually they take all this gold and they put it in a safety deposit box and they lock it away in the bank. And you do that for a lot of other, like a lot of other cultures too. When you have a lot of, when you have these precious rings that you got from your great-grandmother or like, you know, whatever jewels, you don't just, if it's something really, really, really valuable, usually you don't just wear it every day. Usually you lock it away. You keep it sort of, because you don't want to break it. You don't want to mess it up. But 
So that's how we sort of see like treasures and jewels in the world's eyes. But here, if you look in Mark 14, we have this alabaster jar. This very we're just focusing on the jar, right? We didn't even get to the perfume. Focus on the jar, right? So this jar is pretty expensive, but it wasn't. It's not the type of thing that's meant to be preserved and put away. It's meant to be used, right? And because its life is quite short, like what Mary of Bethany did in breaking it was actually. Like, at least in my eyes, as a girl from 2013, it sort of makes sense. Because, you know, might as well break it for Jesus, because it's going to get broken anyways. It's so, it's so fragile, right? So that's the jar, okay? That's the jar. Now let's look at the perfume. Because remember, point number two, another way to love Jesus is to break your jar. So I'm sort of laying out to you why this makes sense. So the jar, we understand. Alabaster, got it, okay? So now let's look at the perfume that's inside of the alabaster jar. So if you look at Mark 14... The jar was holding this very expensive nard. It was holding this very expensive perfume, and it was worth more than a year's wages. Okay, so for you very smart SNU students in the house, what's like, once you graduate, once you have your first job, what would be your ideal starting, like, annual income? Just speak it out. What was that? 70,000. Anyone else? A lot of engineering. Okay, so 70000 that sounds pretty solid. So let's say, okay, so let's say that this, <laughs> let's say that this jar of perfume, like the actual, like perfume itself, it was worth $70,000. Okay, so you have this jar that's like yay big, not that big, and inside that is this liquid that smells nice, but for some reason it's worth $70,000, okay? I don't know how they compute this, but whatever, it was worth it was worth a lot of money, okay? But just like the jar, if you think about perfume, perfume can't remain at this value forever. So think about perfume. Once we have engineering majors, hopefully maybe we have some students who are good in like chemistry or science, but once you open a jar of perfume, as soon as that perfume has, makes contact with oxygen, there's a chemical reaction that happens. So the perfume, it cannot smell as fresh and as beautiful forever. Like as it continues to get exposed to oxygen, it becomes, unfortunately, more and more stale. The smell alters. So perfume, likewise, is not, it's something precious. This, what, $70,000 bottle of perfume is something precious, but it doesn't stay in that form forever, okay? So... Let's go back to Mark 14. In this situation, we have the alabaster jar, we have the perfume, and what does Mary do? She breaks the jar. Okay? And to sort of add another dimension to this, uh, I want to share with you guys, while preparing for tonight's message, God very specifically told me to preach on Mary of Bethany. It was really weird. It was actually very strange, because I had so many other topics that I wanted to talk about. And if I use my brain, there are so many things I could talk about. Like, I was an SNU student, I'm a Christian, whatever. You know, there's so many, just read the news, there's so much to talk about. But for some reason, and I said, Lord, like, I don't want to preach a message just out of my brain. Like, I don't want to just be, like, pulling stuff out of my, like, whatever, you know. But I want to be your mouthpiece. So, God, what do you want me to speak on to the students at SNU? And I kid you not, he said, Mary of Bethany. I said, okay. <laughs> That's a very clear answer. And I said, okay, there are many like, accounts of Mary of Bethany. Like, people, there are different, like, she appears in more than one gospel account. So I said, God, like, which gospel account do you want me to focus on? And he said, Mark. Like, I don't, this has almost like, never happened to me while preparing for a message, but it was very clear. 
And it's funny because if you look at how the Gospel of Mark talks about Mary of Bethany, the one thing that's quite different about the account in Mark is that Mary of Bethany, she doesn't just pour the perfume from the jar, but she breaks that thing. She like breaks the jar and then she anoints the head of Jesus. So it really stood out to me. I said, okay, Jesus, like clearly, like you're wanting to, you are wanting me to tell something to the students at SNU. Why is it so important that she broke this jar? Okay. And as I was meditating on it more and more, I realized that for Mary of Bethany, this alabaster jar, this alabaster jar filled with perfume, this was a sign of her devotion and her love unto the Lord. And this is almost like her offering unto the Lord. But the thing is, if she takes the jar and she pours out the perfume and she anoints Jesus, like that's wonderful, that's beautiful. But at the end, you still have that jar, right? So I, I'm not, I'm, I hope this isn't sound heretical, but let's say that like she keeps the jar and one day she gets like, it's just like a rainy day, she's running low on funds, the rent is due, that like she could sell that jar and you know, she could still like, she gave that extravagant offering to Jesus, but she still has like a little something left, right? But in this case in Mark, what she does is she breaks that jar. So that's like a complete offering to Jesus. Like she gives the perfume and the jar that carries the perfume. After this offering, there's nothing that she can take away. Everything is Jesus. Everything was given unto Jesus. And when I realized that, like, dang, I got like, I got like... I got chills, you know, because I realized that's the sort of devotion that the Lord is calling us to. Okay? And man, it gets, and it gets, even, it gets even better than this. But, anyways, so here we see in Mark 14 that the perfume and the jar that contained the perfume, its sole purpose, its only purpose in Mark 14 is to be offered unto the Lord. Nothing else. It's not to make someone smell nice. It's not to be sold to pay rent later on. It's solely supposed to be offered unto the Lord. And now, I want to sort of shift gears slightly. And sort of now that we understand why it, sort of, it practically makes sense to break the alabaster jar. Remember, the alabaster jar, it's pretty fragile. It's going to break anyways. right? The perfume is not going to spill that good forever. Might as well offer it. right? But what does it mean? to break your jar, right? Because remember, back to sort of the thesis of this message, right? How to love Jesus extravagantly. Number one, know that your identity, your name is already extravagant. Number two, break your jar. What the heck does that mean? Break your jar. Break what jar, right? How does that apply to me? So um, I'm going to share with you what it meant for me specifically, for Lisa Kim, to, for me to break my jar, Okay, and hopefully, and as I share this story, hopefully this will give you sort of a framework for what it means to break your jar, okay? And so my take is that in Mark 14, the jar, that the jar sort of represents Mary's life, okay? And the perfume within it, the perfume that's inside the jar, it represents a love and a devotion that costs something. Okay? And... Let me tell you what it means for me specifically. Uh, it means that understanding that your life, like your gifts, this can't be just stored away untouched. Okay? Your talents, your passions, your degree, okay, your resources, even your finances, these are not things that should be stored away just to look pretty on a shelf. Okay? These are things that need to be used. 
And these are things, these are jars that sometimes need to be broken. And, but see, this is where things get sort of difficult, okay? And especially for SNU students, because I also was once an SNU student. Okay, so let me be sort of vulnerable here and make this message very personal to me for a moment, okay? So I had a very wonderful, like spotless, beautiful alabaster jar and alabaster resume when I entered SNU. So I'm from New York City, and when I was in eighth grade, I had received a scholarship to attend a private school in New York. So I had gone to a public school, but I got into this uh, leadership program that gave me a scholarship to a private school. So my school is basically the old, my high school was basically the oldest all-girls school in New York. Okay, so like John F. Kennedy's granddaughters went to my school. Like the wealthiest families in New York sent their daughters to my school. Most of the, my classmates had addresses on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue, okay? So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the series, like, Gossip Girls. So, like, people, they watch gossip. I mean, yeah, it is a little dramatic, and a lot of stuff is fiction. But when some people watch the show Gossip Girls, it's very, it's very foreign. Like, people, do people actually live that way, you know? But for me, I went to school with girls who actually live that way. Like Paris for a weekend, they live that way, okay? Like they feel a little pasty in the winter and Mexico for the weekend, they live that way, okay? So I went to a high school like that, okay? Dang, right? Man, sometimes I forget because like, it's been so long ago. But yeah, I went to high school like that. And afterwards, I went to Brandeis. So Brandeis, it's sort of deemed like the Jewish Harvard, okay? For those of you who might be familiar with the school. And I went to Brandeis because they gave me like, praise God for Brandeis, because they gave me the most, like, generous financial aid package. So I went to this, like, fancy-schmancy New York private school. I go to the Jewish Harvard. I finish up at the Jewish Harvard, and I get my master's at SNU, which is, like, what? The Korean Harvard, right? So, <laughs> so if you think about it, my resume was, like, quite pristine in the, the eyes of the world, okay? And my major when I was at Brandeis was political science and international relations, and when I was at GSIS, my major was international cooperation. So all has to do with like foreign policy, that sort of thing. So for me, coming out to Korea, I really wanted to pursue a career in diplomacy. I wanted to go into foreign service. And it's such a like prestigious job, you know? Like, like, like who wouldn't want to go into foreign service? You get all these perks, and then you're part of the government, and you get to be in fancy photos with the president, and you're just, like, it's, a, it's the sort of job that your parents can easily brag about, right? Easily brag about. So that was my track. And it was really funny, because, like, this government track was what I was going to follow. And even, uh, I've got family in both Korea and in the U.S. who work for the government. So it was, like, it was set. Like, it was a non-issue. I would have, like, it was just all laid out for me. But... In the midst of this, in the midst of my five-year plan, in the midst of whatever like resume I built up, like I thought my alabaster jar was going to stay very pristine. I thought my life, my alabaster jar of a life, was going to be very like just going to be on that shelf and look real pretty, you know, poster some pictures maybe. But while I was at SNU, Holy Spirit actually called me to break this jar. Like, break my precious, like, New York private school, Jewish Harvard, Korean Harvard, that jar. Holy Spirit told me to break that jar. And to basically literally pour out an offering to Jesus that cost me something. Like, Holy Spirit led me into a season 
to basically give an expensive offering onto Jesus to show my devotion for him. And so how did this happen? Like what was, like what was the, what did it mean for me to break my jar? So what had happened was God called me into the ministry. Okay, so like Rona had introduced me, I serve as the executive director of missions at New Philadelphia Church. And I've been serving in this capacity ever since 2009. So even when I was a grad student, even when I thought I was going to go into like government, I was still serving in that position just as like my service to the church. So I serve as the executive director of missions at New Philly. And I also serve as the overseer's assistant at Native Partners for World Mission. So this is basically the missions organization through which New Philly sends out our teams. Okay. And as I agreed to, like, after I finished up SNU, after I finished up my degree, I agreed to take on uh, these wonderful positions. And by me serving as a missions director and by me serving as a, the overseer's assistant at MPWM, it actually requires me to live off of support. So I sort of, I literally live like a missionary in Korea. So, and this was actually a very interesting transition to make. Because while I was at SNU, while I was like a master's student at SNU, while I was a, you know, my American degree, whatever, like fancy, like, you know, show off at SNU, I could, I easily made se- several thousand dollars a month just from private tutoring, you know? And this is actually easy. T- I mean, when you get paid $100 an hour, it adds up pretty quickly, okay? So, yeah, so money was not an issue when I was at SNU. And like I said, I was able to get paid $100 an hour. But if you make the switch to ministry, when you're living off of support, if you get someone to commit $100 a month, that's actually considered really solid support. So can you imagine, like my first month living off of support, my whole concept of finances and money was being completely turned around. I said, it was a really refining season for me. Because I, I would, like, because you write these, like, support letters, and you pray over these support letters, and you, like, humble yourself, and you give out these support letters, and you pray for somebody, you know, like, it, it's, a, it's a very, it, it involves a lot of work, and then when you get, if someone agrees to support you, $100 a month is actually, a, it's like a, it's really seriously good support. But I had gone from easily making that in an hour to making that in a month, Right? So I said, oh, Jesus, this is really hard. Like, this is not easy. What, like, what are you doing to me, you know? And I think there was a season where I got really bitter at the Lord, actually. Because I said, God, why is it that you expose me to such extravagant wealth from such a young age, right? Like, all my high school classmates, they were hecka wealthy. Called, like, Jewish, like, Jewish Harvard, they were all wealthy. SNU, everyone is, I, I was always around really rich people, you know? And I thought I was going to go into a life of, like, prestige and wealth. And I said, Lord, why did you expose me to all of this at such a young age? Why did that become such a part of my, like, desire just for you to, like, completely turn it around, right, and live off of support? I was so confused. I said, Jesus, don't you love me? Like, what's going on? This doesn't make sense, right? So that's number one. That was, like, one aspect of what it meant for me to sort of break my jar, okay, the whole financial aspect. And another aspect was approval of man. Okay, so, um, like I said, I saw myself going into a future of foreign policy, diplomacy, super fancy position. Your parents can easily brag about it, right? But here's the catch. Right now, as of today, um, my father is not yet saved. It's not that he's not, he's not yet. I know he's going to be saved, but he's just not there yet. Okay, so my dad is not yet saved. So imagine this. So my 
passion for politics and history comes directly from my dad. So once he found out that I wanted to go into, like, whatever, he was so proud. He was, like, pushing me, all that stuff. But now I switch gears and I tell him that I want to go into missions. My dad's not yet saved. He has no grid for what I'm doing. Like, you know, he trusts me. He trusts me, but he's, like, he wants to, like, support me. He wants to brag about me, but he has no grid for Jesus. So how can he have a grid for missions, Right? So that was number one. And even number two, whenever my mother uh, calls me on the phone, she constantly tells me to come home. Like, come on, just come home. Get married. Like, just settle down in New York, you know? Like, just come home. What are you doing in Korea? So, and even when I go to family reunions, it's really funny because they're all so confused. Like, I've told them, you know, I'm going into missions. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is my passion. And, but for some reason, every time I see them, they're still asking me, Oh, when are you going to take the diplomats exam? You know, like when are you going to go to these? Like they, they have, they still haven't like accepted the fact that I want to go into missions. It like doesn't make sense for them, right? So, yeah. So they'll ask me these questions like, what are you going to, like all this fancy schooling that you got, like what are you going to do with it? Like it, they just have no grid for what I'm doing. But in the midst of all of that, like in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the financial, like, refining that the Lord has brought me through and in the midst of me having to give up that approval of man and in the midst of all these questions that are posed by people who used to brag about me so easily in the midst of that my answer to them ultimately is that like my life is an offering to Jesus like literally my life is an offering to Jesus and my my take on this is why can't Jesus have the best because they say, you know, Lisa, you went to this fancy school, you went to this fancy college, sold a grad, you should go into all these, like, they rattle off the careers that I should go into. But why can't Jesus have the Harvard grads? You know what I'm saying? Like, why can't Jesus have his pick? Why is it that so many people assume that it's only, like, they have, a lot of people have the mis, like, conception, misperception, that it's only once you can't do any other things that you sort of resort to ministry. No, that's not the case. Like, my, my conviction, my personal conviction is that Jesus, he should get the first fruits. So my life, like, I literally see my life as a first fruit offering unto the Lord, right? If people have an issue, then they'll get over it because I don't care. You know, that's my life. And it's really funny because in our day and age, like, how many of you like watching, like, romance, like, like movies, like, romantic movies? <laughs> Brothers, I know you like to watch some of them, right? I... It's okay. You guys are manly men. You don't need to. But I, I can. I can discern. You. You like your. You like your tear juggers too. Even brother Eugene, right? I, I'm sure. I'm sure there must be like one. He denies it, but just you wait. But no. But the thing is, it's so funny because when you see, when you watch these really romantic movies and you read these romantic novels, you hear these stories of like Romeo and Juliet, right? They give up everything for each other, and you hear. I don't know, like almost every, almost any like intense romantic like melodrama, they give up money, they give up safety just because of their love for a guy or for a girl. They don't care. As long as they have that one person, it doesn't matter. And when we see that, like, 
oh gosh, like our tears start to run down and we say, oh man, like I want to find, I want to find a love like that. Jesus, come on, give me, give me my man, right? I want to find a man where I could just give up everything and just be happy as long as he's with me. Or for the brothers, like Jesus, where's my girl? Where's my girl? I want that girl where no matter, even if nothing is going right in my life, as long as I have my girl, like I want to have that sort of relationship, right? Where as long as I had that one person, everything's okay. Like that's something that we long for. And that's something that we really esteem. But why is it then when all of a sudden Jesus is added to the picture, that people get all confused? Because think about it. Because for me, like I gave up everything for Jesus. Well, not everything. But you know, like in the eyes of the world, oh my gosh, everything, right? They think, oh Lisa, she gave up everything. But and yeah, sure, I gave it up for Jesus, and I'm willing to. I did it once, and I'll do it again. Because he's my love. I love him. You know? That's my show, like, that's my demonstration of my devotion and my love for Jesus. But why is it that because Jesus is in the picture, people get so confused? Because let's say that I gave up everything, my schooling, my income, whatever. I gave it up because I found this guy that I love, and we ran away together to, like, India. I don't know. I'm always talking about India. I'm sorry. I, I love India. Right? So let's say, let's say that I did this, right? People will say, man, that's so romantic. Oh, living on the edge. Like, that's life. Like, nine to five, not, uh, I don't live a romantic, adventurous life like that. Right? So they esteem it. But then when somebody gives up everything for Jesus, they get all confused. Like, why is that the case? No, uh, no, 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 no. Right? So that's my take. So that's my take. So my, like, my, the reason why I shared all these things that I quote-unquote gave up is not for, for you guys to feel sorry for me because I don't feel sorry for myself, but it's for, you to sort of, for me to challenge you guys to sort of rethink what it means to really live a life of devotion for Jesus, right? And what it means to live a life of love, whether it's in the world's eyes or in the eyes of heaven as well, okay? But I know for me personally... Like, in the midst of all of this, like, me personally, I sort of want to live a life like King David. Okay? So if you read, yeah, right? If you read in Second Samuel, uh, chapter 24, verse 24, I'll just sort of summarize it for you. You don't have to turn there. But King David, he's in the midst of building an altar for the Lord. Okay? He's building an altar for the Lord, and he's told to buy the threshing floor of Aruna. Okay? So he needs to buy this floor to help complete his altar that he's going to consecrate onto the Lord. And Aruna, he's so like, I guess he understands how important this is to build an altar. So he basically offers King David a bargain, you know, because he understands how significant this is. But David replies, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Okay, so for David, for King David, he could have easily just paid a less, lesser offering. Because it's still an offering. So he could have given a lesser offering and still be sort of like, check mark, you know. I, I took that off my list. But no, he chose to give an offering to the Lord that cost him something. And even if you think back to Jesus and Lazarus, right, he, like, just because he could, just because he could, he didn't just heal Lazarus while he was sick. He waited for Lazarus to die so he could raise him from the dead. Just because he could. Just because he's Jesus. In this situation, just because he's King David, I got the money. Why not give an extravagant offering? Right? And even, even for Mary of Bethany, she bought the perfume. She already made the decision to buy this expensive perfume. Might as well go out, break the jar, and extravagantly anoint Jesus. 
Right? So yes. Man. It's it's funny that I'm here sharing this with you. But anyways. Yeah. So just like in Mark 14, um, Jesus tells his disciples, you will not always have me. Okay? Because at the end of the passage where they talk about Mary of Bethany, they're saying, oh, Mary, why'd you do this? You could have used the money, build a hospital, whatever. Jesus said, yo, chill out. Chill out. She did a good thing. Because check it out. You're not going to always have me with you. I'm not always going to be here with you. But Mary of Bethany, she did what she could. So that's sort of my uh, philosophy when it comes to sort of living a life of devotion unto the Lord. Because there'll be times, there'll be seasons in your life where God will call you to a greater level of devotion. Okay, And this doesn't always mean, oh, I'm going to go into ministry. You know, Sometimes a higher act of devotion means like staying at your job, even if you don't like it. Sometimes a higher act of devotion means staying at your school, even if you want to transfer out. Whatever it means, there'll be times when God calls you to a higher level of devotion. Okay, But the thing is that that moment, the opportunity to say yes or no, it doesn't last forever. Because even for me, when the Lord called me into the ministry, like he didn't say, hey, Lisa, why don't you consider a future missions? Let me know in a year. No, I had to make my decision within like a week. Because I was going to graduate soon. I could have followed up with like certain job offers. I could have gone back to New York. There are things that were, I had a timeline I had to work with. But I had to make that decision right then and there. No, Lord, I want to devote my life unto you in this way. I want to be obedient to your call and go into ministry and go into missions. So likewise, whenever the Lord challenges you to a higher level of devotion, I want to sort of challenge you to not sort of see that opportunity as a situation where you take your alabaster jar and sort of put it on the shelf, you know? Because the thing is that, like, there are things that God challenges you to make a decision on right then and there. Okay, so let me unpack this for you a little bit more. Okay, so... Yeah. When it comes to the story of the alabaster jar, just to sort of make it a little bit more practically relevant for you all, um, there's a worship song that I really, really love, okay? And it's called Pour My Love on You, okay? And as I'm going to read the chorus of this song out to you guys, and by listening to the chorus, you'll have a better understanding of what it means for you to live a life of devotion unto the Lord, okay? So the chorus of the song goes, Like oil upon your feet, like wine for you to drink, Like water from my heart, I pour my love on you. If praise is like perfume, I'll lavish mine on you. Till every drop is gone, I'll pour my love on you. Okay, so I guess sort of point three to my to my message to you all in terms of how to you know love God extravagantly is number one, know that your identity is already extravagant. Number two, break your jar. Whatever jar that may be, it's going to be different for every person. Like your jar is not going to look like my jar because we're different people, right? But break your jar. But number three, know that when you break your jar, no matter what it is, when you pour out that love and that devotion, when you pour out that offering, that sacrifice that costs you something, know that it's not something that's just like a theory. It's not just an idea. If you look at this chorus... Like this love that you pour out, it's wine. It's like oil that you use to anoint the feet of Jesus. 
Okay, the love that you pour out, the sacrifice that you make to show your love for Jesus, it's like wine that he's able to drink. Okay, this devotion that you show, it's water from your heart that pours onto Jesus, and it's sort of like perfume that is lavished onto Jesus. So I think that's for, for me, that's one reason why this song is so meaningful to me. Because, yeah, I know what it means to live a life of devotion. Yeah, I know it's good. Yeah, I know when I share my testimony, it sounds all holy and whatever. But when I heard this song for the first time, I said, wow. Like, Lord, my, my sacrifice, my giving up everything, or my breaking my alabaster jar, yeah, it was an act of devotion, and yeah, it was an act of love and obedience. But it actually meant something to you. Like, it was oil. oil like, my devotion to you was like oil that was anointing your feet. Like my devotion, my love, my sacrifice, it was wine that you were able to drink, pleasing wine, delicious wine that brought you joy. Right? My devotion, my love, it was perfume that you were using to anoint your body. Right? So, yeah, so on that note, um, yeah, if I could have just that maybe the keyboard has come up, I want to just, I want to lead you all in just in a time of prayer just in the time of prayer and meditation, because what had happened was, it was while I was at SNU that the Lord spoke to me very specifically about what it means to break my jar, what it means to break my jar. And just like there was a grace upon me while I was at this school and while I was at this campus, I want to really release that grace onto you as well tonight. Okay, because I get the feeling, like I just feel in my heart that that each and every one of you, you know, just by default of being human, that each and every one of you, you have, you have a jar. Everyone has an alabaster jar. Like, there's this jar that, you know, you'll give everything onto the Lord, but there's that one jar that you sort of want to keep. Maybe that's your career, right? Maybe that's status. Maybe that's your family. I don't know what it is, but what I want you to do right now is just, Still your hearts before the Lord and ask God, Lord, what is my alabaster jar? What is one thing that I've been keeping to myself? Is it my career? Is it my resume? Is it my future? Is it my finances? Is it my income? Is it how people perceive me? What is that alabaster jar? What is this alabaster jar that I've been sort of keeping from you? And Lord, what does it mean for me to break this alabaster jar? What does it mean for me to break it and to pour out that devotion onto you. Okay? So I want you to just spend some time, just be still. Be still and listen to the Lord. Hear what he says to you. What is your alabaster jar? And in the midst of this, don't let, just sweep away any fear, any anxiety. God knows how much you can handle. Don't worry, you know? Like, I'm sure he's not going to call you to Africa unless you're able to handle it. But know that, you know, God has a very, he has a perfect plan for you. He has a very, very perfect plan for you. And his desire, the reason why he sent Jesus to die for your sins, is not for you to have an okay life, but for you to have an abundant life. Right? So it's only by you breaking the alabaster jar, sort of like even what Ronab had mentioned before during pre-prayer, it's by you pouring out whatever's in your jar that you can receive more of his goodness, more of his perfect plan, more of his, of his grace, more of his anointing. Right? So right now, why don't you just spend some time, ask God, like literally ask God with the faith that he's going to answer you. Ask God, be like, God, what is my alabaster jar? What's my alabaster jar? 
And what does it mean for me to break this alabaster jar as a sign of devotion to you? Okay, let's just pray right now.